coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Within 10 days of doing that manifestation meditation, Corn texted me, which I hadn't talked to them in probably over a decade, to come play with them. Then I had to chase the Corn gig for a long time. Like the guitar player wanted me in, Monkey, but the singer was like kind of cool with the guy they had in there, but he was drinking himself death. And he's now dead. Shane Gibson, rest in peace. So they wanted a sober musician that could come in and play with them. And my name had come up years before. But when they mentioned my name, like, oh, no, that guy's like a drunk madman. So then my name came up again. And they're like, no, no, he's sober now. So then I chased the gig for six months before I got it. So when I got that gig, I was like, oh, my God, this is recovery. Life beyond your wildest dreams. I got the best gig of my life with a legendary band that sold 50 million records or whatever because of my recovery. And I remember sitting in a Starbucks in the airport in like North Carolina, just bawling. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have a very special guest, Wes Gear. Wes is a professional guitar player, songwriter, recording artist, and producer who signed his first record deal to Jive Records with the band he founded, Head P.E. Wes toured the world for nearly a decade, and the band sold over 1 million records worldwide. Their music was on high rotation on MTV radio stations, as well as having numerous placements in popular feature films, TV, and video games. What many didn't know at the time was while he was leading his band to their first ever record deal, Wes was a full-blown drug addict using alcohol, methamphetamines, and other drugs daily for years. No matter the efforts to quell his addiction and control it, things continually got worse. After nearly a decade of touring the world with the biggest names in rock, Wes's life was imploding, and he finally left in 2003 for a lifestyle change that ultimately ended up with him in rehab in 2004. In 2010, Wes decided he wanted to get back into music and started praying and meditating on what that would look like. Not long after, and only because he was sober, Gear was offered the gig as a guitarist with the rock band Korn. He traveled the world performing in more than 40 countries with the multi-platinum stars, as well as appeared on numerous live televised and studio recording sessions. Gear was then moved to give back, wanting to create something that could help people who struggled the same way he had. He then founded Rock to Recovery, a nonprofit organization created in late 2012 with the purpose of providing those in various types of treatment and recovery programs, the cathartic, uplifting, healing experience of connectivity through music. Rock to Recovery is doing really incredible things and talking with Wes gave me a deeper understanding of what they're doing and how it can help people, especially people who are struggling and or in recovery. So this is just really cool. Such a privilege. Wes is an amazing guy with a huge spiritual life, which was so, so cool to understand. And we got to dive in deep on his recovery. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, I give you Wes Gear. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. 
Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. All right, Wes, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. This is awesome. It's so awesome. We just found out we're neighbors, basically. I know. I know. And like in the greatest place in the world, too. Laguna Beach, if anybody's wondering at home. Greatest, greatest place. Although I've already started going to the beach and have managed to get sunburned twice. So apparently I'm new at this. Base coat's very important. You've got to start slow with a subtle base coat. It's the start slow part. I've never mastered that. So if you know anybody who knows how to start slow, yeah, I'm looking for Monday. I don't. Oh, okay. I don't. I just I just say things that yeah. I've heard. And yeah. Repeat yeah, yeah. Them. Everything in moderation. That that one. Yeah. No, no. It doesn't ring a bell with me either. No. Mm-mm. Awesome. Well, you are clean and sober, and you founded a organization called Rock to Recovery because of your incredible background, which we'll we'll get into. I was thinking about you this morning because one of my favorite drum solos. I guess it's not really a solo, but in Freak on a Leash, I, my kids play drums. And so we've they've been trying to master that. And so I was thinking of you this morning. Mm, David Silvera. Here yeah, you go. The OG be... corn legend. Yeah. Well, That's so cool. tell us a little bit about... So what's your sobriety? We'll start there. What's my sobriety date? Yes. Second sobriety date, which is, I still have, is uh, 12 10 of 07. So I'm uh, 14.39, something like that. I use the app. So it's all metric system 14.39 years. I got sober in 04, went to rehab, did the uh, AA thing until I didn't. And then so I went slowly back to my old ways, got loaded for about six months, tried all I could to control my drinking like a gentleman, but you can't really do the drugs I was doing like a gentleman. So once that happened, yeah, I went back to, luckily I made it back and I've been able to stay sober ever since because I know that I have to keep working on my recovery program, which is really staying in alignment with, you know, my spiritual self. Yeah. I think there are a lot of us who need to get into sobriety and then we start like, maybe it can work, maybe it'll be different. And we needed that extra data to be able to stay sober and to refer back to. Yeah. You know, they say when you get sober, you have to have no reservations. I had no reservations, but what happened is I explained it, how it was explained to me is I went insane again because I knew I couldn't drink safely ever, but by veering away from the program where I didn't have those reminders, my brain talked me into like, yeah, you probably can, but I already knew I could. So I unlearned a fact about myself, which that is like insanity, right? Thinking that you can do something again that you knew you couldn't do. So yeah. And then for me, um, I think, you know, obviously everybody has their own experience. But for me, when I came back, I was like, okay, so you had some time, you did well, and you went out. And so what's going to be different this time to ensure your sobriety? And there's two things. Never stop doing my 12-step recovery program because I weaned and weaned and weaned until there was nothing left. And also I had to get more connected to my recovery community because I have social anxiety like so many of us. It's easy for me to go, oh, I'm just going home now. But I have to. I had to start going to the dinners after the meetings and meeting with people outside of that. And that actually was one of the biggest 
things I did for my recovery. It was actually the fellowship outside of the meetings and getting connected there. So when I went to the meetings, I felt like that was my family and that's what I need. I need to walk in and not be insecure and just be like, these are my people. And so those are the key things that I really made sure never will go away from this, you know, 14 years of my program. That's And that was the thing that you did differently than the first time. Yeah. Because uh, the first time, you know, I was all into it. There was some social element, but I started going to meetings late and going late and leaving early and just slowly disconnecting. So it's kind of like, I got to make sure, kind of like when you're, cli- they say when you're climbing, although I guess the great climbers don't do it, but you're supposed to have three points of contact. Make sure that I always, I'm always plugged into some degree. Yeah. You know? I love that. I like three points of contact. I haven't heard that. Can you tell us, you know, we all come from different places. And I think one of the the most helpful things is for us to identify little feelings we had along the way and to understand what the drugs and alcohol did for us, right? I always talk about like, we hired them to do a job. They did a great job at first. And then at some point they got lazy. And then at some point they stopped working and we still had this, we were still trying to get something out of them that they no longer provided. What did it look like when your childhood, How? Did, what did it look like growing up and your introduction? to these substances? My parents divorced when I was five. That was way more emotional than I realized it was. If you had asked me in my teens, I would have been like, yeah, big deal. you know. But, but when I did deeper work, I found out that that actually created some coping mechanisms and abandonment and insecurities I didn't know I had. And I think that when we're younger, you know, if you live in a cave and that's all you know, it's going to take you a while till you go, hey, what's outside of this cave? <laughs> and so when you're just a young person, in your head. You don't know what's weird, what's not normal. You're not very self-aware. And so I was really insecure and my parents divorced, as I said. So we moved from California back East. And then I was, you know, my mom was trying to give us a better life and we were moving and going from school to school to school. So it was bringing out more of the insecurity, more than not fitting in. She reconnected with a high school sweetheart. So we came back to California. I had more moving. Now I was the funny kid from Massachusetts with plaid pants that looked like Bobby Brady and they made fun of me. So it was a lot of insecurity and not feeling good enough. And so when I started smoking weed was the first thing I did about 14 or 15. Actually, what I thought was really intriguing is that my rehab had me do a timeline, which I didn't know why, but of like my drinking and using. And then somehow they tied in significant moments of my life. And when you looked, it was really obvious that when certain big emotional things happened, my drug use or using went up. So I started weed. We were in Garden Grove, California for a good number of years, probably six years. So I finally felt like I had roots. My best friends and my parents are like, we're moving. And I didn't realize until I went back in my sobriety and found a letter I wrote to God, which just isn't something I normally do. It was like, oh, we're moving and I'm so upset, dear God, kind of thing. That's right when I started smoking weed. And from that point on, I really had to have weed all the time. I was smoking it alcoholically. And it was also the way I connected to people at the schools. Oh, you like Iron Maiden and Dead Kennedys and wear ripped jeans and smoke weed. That was my in. Kind of like later on tour, I would pick up on girls by going, hey, you have a cigarette. That was my way in. Like my way into friendship was like, you want to smoke some weed and you like heavy metal? So yeah, like you said, that's how it worked. It worked for me. But I mean, I got kicked out of school at 16 for smoking weed in the bathroom. And it's funny when you hear people share their stories, you hear these sayings that can apply to your story. And like, so one of my friends shares, he goes, did I ever think at that point I should maybe quit weed? No. 
I get kicked out of high school. So I thought, well, I won't live with mom anymore. I'll go live with dad. Right. And they talk about that pulling a geographic, you know, and, uh, so that's, that's what it was like. And then, uh, I got into, you know, keg parties and high school parties. And I don't know what it was like for other people. Of course, this is back before cell phones, but it was basically call all your friends, get a piece of paper. Did you hear about the party on Muralins? Oh uh, yeah, I got that one. Oh, there's one on Geronimo. Okay, cool. And then we would get all the parties and just drive. Nah, that one wasn't happening. Oh, this one got busted. Oh, you know, that one's still happening. You know, it's just like, that's what we did. Even then people were telling me, man, you get too drunk. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm doing what you're doing. And that's interesting. So you had people giving you feedback who were hanging out with you then? I think one of the first times I got drunk, a bunch of us somehow got our parents to let us go to some cabin somewhere. And we bought some Meisterbrow, just horrible beer. And I remember I had a few beers and I thought I was possessed. So I was howling, oh, at the moon, just being a weirdo 16-year-old. And they're like, Wes, get in the room and don't come out. That would be my drinking career from then on. Just always too much, too weird, too out there. I like how you said, and I've heard you know this lots of times, but I think it's important to bring this up, which is you said that I've smoked weed alcoholically. And one of the things that I had trouble with, I don't, I don't know if you can relate to this, was my drug use was pretty serious, but my alcoholism was always there underneath it. And I went to AA and felt like maybe I couldn't identify because I also had the drug use piece. And I think a really cool thing, if you're in AA, if you look at your drug use and you use all things alcoholically, that it allows us to identify with anything. And that that was kind of what you pointed out. Like I can pull, I can belong anywhere because you're talking about using a substance alcoholically, which ultimately means addictively in that, in that cycle. And so it doesn't really matter what 12-step program you belong to because you can belong to all of them and, and find the similarities. It's this disease that wants us to be different. And then, then there's that terminal uniqueness. What is terminal uniqueness? It means that you're so different that you're going to fucking die. Pardon my language. That's what it means. The reality isn't what I used. It's more like the fact that I have a mental health disorder that makes me restless, irritable, and discontent. People call it boredom. I say it's restless, irritable, and discontent unless I'm loaded. And then when I'm loaded, I can't control it and I'll never be able to control it. So it really doesn't, I don't get hung up on that stuff. And when I was first going to AA, I was saying I'm an alcoholic addict. And this old timer goes, hey, why you got to make yourself different? Why don't you just be an alcoholic? You don't think she did cocaine? You don't think this guy does drugs? He does. Listen to his story. He does drugs. Just be an alcoholic. Why do you got to make yourself different? And I thought, yeah, I'm cool with that. And so teach their own. If they got to hyper identify, cool. I'm just an alcoholic. I don't need to be all specific. You know, I would like a cheeseburger. No, it's not a cheeseburger. It's a cheeseburger with pickles and extra sauce. Okay. Why don't you just call it cheeseburger? Well, because mine is with pickles and extra sauce. I must, it's just why. I think it's something that as you're in longer, it just gets, you're like, yeah, whatever. We're here to recover. And in the beginning, having someone explain it to you, having someone say like, why don't you just look at everything you used as used alcoholically? I mean, those were things I really got, I was like confused about like, well, how am I supposed to just be an alcoholic? And, you know, and I think that those, I know for me, when I think, oh oh, yeah, I did that alcoholically, like putting that in my brain, it shifts my perspective. And that's really what 
12 step did. And all the people with time who came before me, they just shifted my perspective so that I could talk back to the disease, you know, as they K fuck radio that was like always in my head. I could, I know that station. Yeah. Yeah. I could respond to K fuck radio with like, yeah, you did it alcoholically, like relax. One of the things that's interesting about your story is that, you know, we're all trying to be terminally unique. You became unique having this fame and music career, right? And something that often comes, the struggle with that is this idea of like terminal uniqueness. Like we see people really struggle with that and potentially have people surrounding you who are going to tell you what you want to hear because they want something from you or they want you to like them or it's a different dynamic. How did that play into both getting loaded and then recovery? Well, yeah. So the disease of addiction has to be cultivated, right? So there's a lot of people who could potentially be alcoholics and you, we probably all know some are just bringing crazy, but they don't drink alcoholically because they just, life doesn't allow. But you get on a tour bus and there's so much opportunity to drink, the disease can progress. Yeah. So you have opportunity every night and everybody's getting loaded, there's drugs and stuff everywhere. And you're like, you know, maybe if I was loaded now touring, people would call me out more. But back then there was so much less awareness about addiction and how to confront it that, you know, sometimes people like, oh man, when are you getting off the party train, Wes? It's like, dude, what are you talking about? I just sold the most records I've ever sold in my life. Oh, let me sign this. What? You know? And so the thing about addiction is, is that we don't usually want help until we lose things or have problems that have nothing to do with our addiction. And when I mean nothing to do with like losing a house doesn't make you alcoholic. You know, getting fired doesn't make you a junkie. Getting a DUI doesn't even make you an alcoholic. What makes you alcoholic is, can you control it? Can you start and stop? Are you using when you don't want to, you know, do you have the allergy? Meaning like when you drink, do you lose all control? That's what makes you an alcoholic. But people won't get help until they lose shit. They get beat up. They're vomiting blood. Their wife leaves them. That's not what makes you an alcoholic. So that's where the terminal uniqueness comes in. And sadly, like I'm talking to a guy right now, super sweetheart of a guy about my age. And after working with him a number of months, he's a periodic. He'll not drink for a while. Then he'll go on a run, crash his car. He has numerous DUIs. And you know, at one point he goes, you know, Wes, I probably don't even have to work anymore if I don't have to. So how do you tell a guy who doesn't have to work, has his own company, doesn't go to jail, hasn't lost his house. He's single, so he can't lose his wife. And then sometimes he even stops for a month or two that he's an alcoholic. Sadly for a guy like him, what we know is he'll probably have to crash his car really bad or lose something or become really sick until he goes, maybe I'm an alcoholic. And none of those things make him an alcoholic. You see what I'm saying? Right. Like he was an alcoholic before those things happened. But those are the things that penetrate KFUCK radio, right? Like those things that happen, or they can get through the voice that's telling us just keep going, keep doing it. That was so-and-so's fault. If this hadn't happened, if that wasn't a blind turn, if whatever. And, and those consequences, they get through that to like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, you know, that, that like, maybe it is a problem. You got to get beaten up into a state of reasonableness. So what forced me to get sober is I lost my first band, not directly due to addiction, but definitely addiction really just made it not go as well as it could have. But then I was working with my brother. He reps some really high-end audio lines and he's very successful. And it was a great opportunity working by the beach. People are like, you're still in music. I'm like, no, I'm in sales. 
festivals we sell musical stuff has nothing to do with music <laughs> anyhow so i just knew in my soul i wasn't meant to be there but i was so lost and depressed after leaving my first band head pe i didn't know who i was so then my drug use like we talked about the timeline went up i started doing meth and heroin trying to do a desk job but basically he fired me so i was down to uh, just a little bit of money in my bank account and i was like okay you lost your band you lost your job and i had probably two grand in my account and this is a 2003 two grand so i was almost gonna be like f everybody i'm going to thailand to ride some elephants so even though i'd lost everything and now i'm getting fired again i almost didn't accept help but then it hit me i had that moment of clarity like dude you're out of control you've been out of control for so long and i started crying i was like nah i'm gonna go to rehab so it was those losses that made me finally have to look at my addiction which is an important kind of like al-anon codependency thing to look at is that people can literally kill people so my brother didn't fire me and gave me another chance again and again like some parents do thinking they got to help whatever Sally get on her feet or something I would have kept using but it was the fact that he said get out of here and if you get help maybe in time I'll work with you and give you your job back but if you could do whatever you want to do and if you do that you're on your own and so it was that loss that made me let people in to guide me on what I needed to do and stop doing it my way and accept help and then so you asked about, you know, how is it kind of like in the music realm with sobriety? Well, you know, luckily for me, when I got the corn gig, I got that gig because I was sober. They wanted a sober guy and getting the corn gig was, you know, I had always wanted to be a musician and a successful musician. And I lost my first band, like we were just talking about. And I was out of music for six years and had resigned that I'll never do music again because that's what my brain said, you know. Music and recovery clearly don't go together. But actually, you know, it was through a process of meditation and feeling so pained to not play anymore. When I would go see shows, I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be up there playing. It was just like it was calling to me, not in an ego way, but like in a soul way. And so I started meditating, doing this awe meditation for manifestation from Wayne Dyer. And I meditate. I want to get back into music. I want to get back into music. Can't be some punk band where I get in a van because I'm too old for that shit. And out of nowhere, within 10 days of doing that manifestation meditation, Corn texted me, which I hadn't talked to them in probably over a decade, to come play with them. Then I had to chase the Corn gig for a long time. Like the guitar player wanted me in, Monkey, but the singer was like kind of cool with the guy they had in there, but he was drinking himself death and he's now dead. Shane Gibson, rest in peace. So they wanted a sober musician that could come in and play with them. And my name had come up years before, but when they mentioned my name, like, oh no, that guy's like a drunk madman. So then my name came up again and they're like, no, no, he's sober now. So then I chased the gig for six months before I got it. So when I got that gig, I was like, oh my God, this is recovery. Life beyond your wildest dreams. I got the best gig of my life with a legendary band that sold 50 million records or whatever because of my recovery. And I remember sitting in a Starbucks in the airport and like North Carolina, just bawling. This is a spiritual reward of doing the work and transformation. I grasped that very tightly, meaning in a gratitude way. So I luckily was so beat up by the fame machine and drugs and addiction and playing music that by the time I came back, I was like, I'm staying humble, baby. That meant I kept going to meetings all around the world and waking up and still doing my routine and praying and meditating and not losing track of what got me there. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And it's, it's a really amazing example. I know a lot of people who their fear is that they'll lose their creativity. They'll lose their ability to make music or to play if they don't have the drugs and alcohol. And I love when musicians come out or artists come out and talk about how they overcame that fear or how they're able to do it. Because I know that it's such a huge thing. I've sat in meetings with people who are terrified that this thing that they absolutely like that they're choosing between their soul connection, their, their art, their love and sobriety and life. And I can't, as someone who's never done that, I can't relay that. I can say, no, no, I I know people, but you know, you can say like, no, really, this is something. And I love that the greatest gig of your life came as a result of that. I think that paradigm is changing, at least that I, I don't know what your, your view is that there's a lot more sobriety. People are bringing their sober companions, people, there's a lot more sobriety on the road. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I feel so blessed that I need to share my story, not from an egoic realm, but like it's proof of what could happen for people, you know, artists or otherwise. I mean, put it this way, like you said, in the beginning, we drank and used because it was working for a while. And so we have to believe that life can be great after we stop drinking and using. And the story that got, I always share this, one of the stories that helped me was when this woman said she was a prostitute sleeping in the park, shooting dope, turning tricks. And she did the 12 steps, went back to college, got a degree, met the man of her dreams, has a loving family, and now runs her own law firm. And I was like, from the 12 steps? Fuck yes, I will do that. But I heard that over and over. And it wasn't about the message I heard wasn't just about, hey, I stayed sober and, you know, it wasn't the drunkalog and that it was about these people becoming the greatest versions of themselves. And what you realize is like, yes. So when my first band, Head PE, was falling apart, Limp Biscuit hit me up because Wes quit the band, Wes Borland. And so I immediately called and I hadn't done meth in a long time. I was like, I need meth. And I did a bunch of meth. And what happened, <laughs> what happened is I went home and wrote a song for three days without sleeping. And then it's so embarrassing. I had a really shitty car and I was way too out of it. I was like, I told my manager, tell them they got to get me a town car. And then so I was way too tweaked out. So then I bought a bottle of Jaeger and made my friend come with me. So I show up at the Limp Biscuit tryouts after not sleeping for three days finish a bottle of Jaeger. And that was like my idea of how to get the gig. But you learned that it wasn't the meth that wrote the songs. It wasn't the whiskey. It was me. What those things do is they shut off the conscious doubting mind that goes, no, this sucks. This isn't good enough. But guess what? You can shut that off by just persevering, you know? And the biggest thing for anybody in these situations is just keep doing it. And it, and then becomes it becomes the normal way. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community, and I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70 plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who struggle with anger or are deep in their grief and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors, 
trained peer support providers and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community, no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lionrock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code COURAGE to try it for yourself for one month free. And now back to the show. You're in this metal band, you know, with corn, you're in this metal band. It's like intense. It's dark. It's, it's, you know, wild. Did you come across people who gave you the opportunity to talk to them about this stuff because they didn't expect you? Like they expected you to be into drugs and they expected you to be wild and crazy and they approached you and then you had an opportunity to work with people or like, did it help you in surprising ways? Cause people didn't expect it. Just in general, when you're out there in the world, living a sober life, people will start reaching out to you. Actually, what happened, which was really cool, one of the tours we did was Disturbed, Corn, In This Moment, and Seven Dust. And there ended up being four or five of us on that tour that were sober. And we found each other and we started having meetings there. And then this other cat from another band went to jail in Czech because they tried to pin something on him that he was, it wasn't his fault. It was later exonerated or whatever. We started sending, doing email gratitude lists as part of our spiritual practices to the, while he was in jail. And that turned into this group of musicians and other people in the industry that are sober that help each other you know and we do zoom meetings all the time you know almost every day basically with guys around the world so it's like when you're out there living that way you kind of find your people and people will start you know know to hey you're different but I, I definitely also met a lot of people who knew the old me and were like dude surprise you're still alive we all thought you were gonna die you know and uh so yeah they say by attraction rather than promotion when you're out there not <laughs> not vomiting on yourself uh, people start wanting to talk to you a little more <laughs> it's the weirdest thing who knew what inspired you to start to create this space that maybe is different yeah when we put out a book we'll get in that in a minute rock to recovery music as a catalyst for human transformation when i was younger and i you know was a ways off from having any real success in the music biz i went to college to be a music teacher i thought i would do that but that's really hard and i flunked out of college i was on a winning streak i got fired from mcdonald's carl's jr domino's pizza and got kicked out of college all in the same couple of years so that was was part of me. I always loved teaching music and sometimes I'd be on tour and on a, you know, on a good one and I'd be trying to teach my guys music theory. So that was in my heart. I also, after head PE and before corn, I worked for a little while in a place called Fusion Academy, where it's one teacher, one student. And I was teaching kids music production and stuff. So I love that side of it, but obviously I'm not a, a very good student, so I'm not going to get a degree to teach. So, but that was in my heart and something I had dreamt about. But you know, what I say about starting Rock to Recovery, which helps a lot of people. And now we have almost 20 people working for the company out there doing this thing we do, which I'll get into in a minute. What I like to say is it came out of uh, 
necessity rather than, you know, altruism. But really the corn gig was going away and I was in my forties and I was like, what the F am I going to do now? And I was really getting into self-pity because when I got the corn gig, I was like, okay, finally, the struggle of a life is over. I'm sober. I got this great gig. Actually, funny story. I had this model girlfriend. I bought a new BMW. I just started renting my friend's condo, which he's like a designer. was all amazing. And I meditated and I was like, okay, now what next? Let's keep building on this. And I heard this. I get messages. This message came to me and says, this is all going away. I was like, no, 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 stop it. Okay. Back into meditation. It's all going away, Wes. I was like, what, what? And I know when I get those messages, sure enough, the girl broke up with me. The guy said, I got to come home. I got to take my condo back. I'm like, I'm going on tour. I don't care. Basically get out. Then I went on tour and Brian had Welch reunited with the band for the first time in seven years. And I was like, well, my gig's over here. I was like, son of a bitch, meditation was right. It's all going away. And I said, okay, well, I don't think God sent me here to suffer. Clearly I need to be sober. I was drawn to being a musician. So if I'm supposed to be a sober musician, musician. How can I help people and make a living? And that was the key that was given to me, honestly, by AA and recovery. Selfishness, you know, and self-centered fear, always worrying about yourself is where most of the pain and the struggle comes from that even leads into our drinking and using. So the key for that, the remedy for that, what ails me is selflessness and seeing where I can bring stuff into the world, not what can I get, what can I bring? So I said, how do I help people make a living? And I thought back, and this is in meditation, I thought back, remember in rehab, when you had your guitar and people are so raw and emotional and they're full of shame and guilt, you have 22 guys and you're like, that guy's an asshole. He's a weirdo. That's my homie. He's pretty cool. But I would play my guitar and the energy would change. And when everybody's so raw emotionally, the guitar or music has even a bigger power than it does out in the world. So I was like, I want to bring music into treatment. And I had this idea, which is kind of what I did in my bands, write a song and bring it to your friends. But it's like, let's write a song together. And so the idea of Rock to Recovery, the mission statement of Rock to Recovery is to help proliferate the use of playing music by non-musicians as a healing transformative force. Because if you look at the beginning of music, uh, a piano didn't fall out of the sky and a caveman found it and started playing Chopin. You know what I mean? That's not what happened. It was communal. It was like cultural and societal. Like people would get together around the campfire and beat and they weren't like, Hey, you know, whatever (laughs) caveman name, you're singing off key. They didn't care. They just sang and they were in their bodies expressing and it brought them together. So I say that pop culture stole music from the lay person because people think, and you see, we deal with it in Rock to Curry sessions, they'll be really like, maybe they can sing really good. And they're like, oh, I'm not very good. It's like, oh, because you're not Beyonce? No, you're great. And it's not about being good. It's about expressing. But now with the accessibility of technology and instruments and YouTube and stuff, a lot more people are doing music. But basically, yeah, we go into a treatment center and we get non-musicians. We talk to them about what is a song. It's feelings and thoughts put to music. And we write a song and record it in one session. So I'll walk in an hour later, we'll all be playing a song that we wrote. I'll give guitar lessons, keyboard lessons, boom, and we record it. And, you know, it's great because, you know, I, I stumbled into it, as I said, out of desperation. But what I watched happen from the outside is, let's say you're in a treatment center and you got 10 guys and the therapist can't get Bob, the mailman to talk or Jim to open up. But when we get in there with music, all of a sudden Bob's like, 
hey, I feel like I'm in Steely Dan now, or, you know, I wish I'm Eminem. And they start wrapping their feelings out. I've had like beautiful 18-year-old girls sing songs about hiding the jam heroin in their neck. They're getting it out. And then we help process it into a positive mantra. So when a treatment center would see people who wouldn't be engaged in other groups really open up and have this cathartic experience with us, it really led to our success. So we do about 600 sessions every month now. The model is that we're integrated as part of the weekly treatment curriculum of various treatment programs. And we have a contract with the Department of Defense that flies us around the world to work with wounded warriors. And I mean, talk about an honor for a former tweaker to get to work with guys and women. And now we even work with their children and the caregivers and write songs and just watch the music help heal people. It's the greatest gift ever. What's one one of the most, but I'm just using that word, powerful, like just shocking, powerful experiences that you've had writing songs with a group of people where you were like, I didn't imagine this when we started. So there's a saying, I don't know if it's a saying, but there's this thing where like sometimes stuff happens in life that if you put it into the movie, it's so obvious it would be cheesy and people would be like, no, you can't do that. Right. But those moments happen. So we're doing Rock to Recovery and some hotel ballroom where they put us or whatever, you know, meeting room. And we're writing a song and this gal comes in in a wheelchair and she tells us that she's had a hundred and something surgeries, you know, like 30 on this part and 40 on here. They can't fix that. I mean, this is what these people go through. It's like way beyond what you'd ever imagine. And she's like, okay, cool. And then she goes, Hey, uh, I think I want to try to sing. Yeah, sing. And she started singing like, wow, you sound pretty good. And she's like, well, yeah, I used to sing, but you know, my condition, I haven't sang in so many years. So we're already blown away that this woman's like singing in a wheelchair. So then when we go to perform the song in front of the whole audience, which is all servicemen and women on the Air Force base now. And so while we're performing, she starts getting up out of her wheelchair. And this isn't a woman who walks around and starts singing the song in front of everybody. We're like, what fuck? And I remember thinking right then, I was like, this is like a movie, but you could have put it in a movie because it's too friggin' amazing obvious. And you have to think what's happening for her in that moment. You know, it may just be like, what? So she's suing and she stood up. No, no. It moved her so much that it pushed away her physical doubt and pain. And and it got her to just feel powerful that she could sing up these kind of magic moments. They're just indescribable. And so the thing is, it's like, that's how we get to do rock recovery. It's like, if you ask people, they'll tell you how powerful and magical music is, but it just seems so underutilized. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny as you're saying this, I have musicians in my family and, and, you know, it's interesting because you were like, it removed it from the lay people. Like I've always wanted to play drums, but there's a drum set in my house. Okay. My kids take drums, drum lessons. My father plays drums. My husband plays drums. Like, why is it so inaccessible? Because with addiction, I was listening to something Brene Brown was talking about shame with addiction, right? There's shame, which plays into perfectionism, right? It was like, and I'm very much like, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know what the right 
what if I mess it up? What if I, all those things. And all of that was the part of the addiction piece. Addiction doesn't think that we're good enough to just try or be, or just be out there. And that doesn't go away just because we get sober. It, it, it changes. And so going and bringing it back to the lay people, you're right. Most people do not participate in an instrument unless they're watching YouTube videos to do it well, or they're taking lessons. It's not just like the drum circle, like you, you talked about. You're talking, you're like, no, it's about your soul. And I'm thinking about it cognitively, right? Because that's how I, I would think about it. So I, I love that. That's really cool and a really beautiful way to get people to tap into creativity, generally speaking. Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing with rock to recovery sessions is it's easy for people to go, oh, that's fun. Mm-hmm. No, it's not just that. Like it's so multifaceted because some people in there, you're teaching them the keyboard part. And if you're an alcoholic, like you said, shame and guilt and low self-esteem and not believing in yourself, everybody's waiting for them to learn the part. They're like, ah, man, I can't do this. Hey, bro, hang in there. We're going to do this together. You know what I mean? So they're working through fears. And then the scientific element is when we listen to music, it engages half the brain. And we know how magical just listening to music is. It's in everything we do from church services to concerts to sporting events to movies, right? But when we play music, it engages our whole brain. It's very unique in that way. And so it actually helps us, you know, with serotonin, dopamine, dopamine levels. And then when we sing, which we do in pretty much every rock recovery session we get we do what we call the gang saying we write a course of something we believe in and we all sing together well that releases oxytocin which is called the love molecule which for people listening who don't know the love molecules you know secreted after childbirth or when we hug somebody for 20 seconds they say and so when we sing together in this group it makes people feel a part of and then you have this other part like you're talking about where we always say this song didn't exist an hour ago you created this and it shows them that they when's the last time a junkie or an alcoholic did something and completed it or did something they didn't think they could do and completed it. So you're sending the message of like, you can do shit you don't think you can do and it can be awesome. And it also shows the ability of working together. So there's just so many levels that this kind of stuff helps people. I love that. I love that. It's really, really cool. You touched on a piece of this I want to ask you about in a lot of your story, which is the spiritual experiences, the spiritual aspect, the meditation that you have experienced. And I know you've uh, worked with a psychic. Paul Selig, yeah. What has that experience? But did you always like meditation is one of those things where people often feel kind of the same way, like it's inaccessible. How do I do it? How did you tap into that as such an important part of your recovery? I love this topic. I love this topic so much. Okay. Well, for me, I've always felt like there's something out there. This is just my story, but I've always had a problem with religion. It's so easy to poke holes or find fault in, you know, Catholic priests or holy wars. And But I've always felt there's something more. Some people don't even believe that. But actually, I believe everybody does. And they're just hung up on certain things that make them think they don't. But anyhow, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous program is a spiritual program. The goal of the steps is to have you have a get a better connection with your higher power. The way I would explain it is that I'm basically like an antenna 
and you know i'm picking up whatever frequencies are putting them off and when i came in with so much shame and guilt and anger at the world and just all these emotions i couldn't feel good about much in my life but as i started to work these steps where i made amends and i dealt with my resentments and i fixed the world around me and i started connecting to people i just got a pure connection to the world right i started being able to connect to the world and that's really to me what spirituality is right so if you talk about Jesus or Buddha, you know, suffering, it's in our mind. It's how our mind perceives or interprets our life around us. This has been part of my journey. And like today, I'll be honest, I woke up it just in my head, I was just tripping a little bit. I felt kind of lonely and disconnected and like west against the world and worn out. And uh, so I have to do the meditation. I have to do all this stuff to get me back to source energy. The way I explain it is, is that so many of us are force fed this picture of what religion or spirituality is from somebody else. And it's a very specific thing that makes people go, well, my grandma said this and that, and that seems lame. And I don't like her yelling at me about Jesus sending me to hell. So I don't like religion. And what I learned is, and the way I explain it is this metaphor is like, you have to just put together the picture of what it is for yourself. And what I would have happened is like, well, I know all that isn't God to me, but how about this thing that happened? Sure does feel like God. And how about that thing that happened? Ooh, and how about those chills when I listen to music? And in a while, we take all these puzzle pieces and it starts to paint our picture of what God or spirituality or the universe is. And we have to do it by exploring it and being open and then kind of like documenting what happens for us. And then so when I started getting into meditation and I told you about these experiences I'm getting, and then I had my dead friend talk to me, my friend Odin, a year after he died, I was just meditating like I do. And I was like, oh, hey, Duke, I love you. I miss you. I'm saying this in my head, not like I'm talking to Duke, but just like whatever, I'll throw it out there. And right at the end, I said, hey, is there anything you want me to do down here? But when I meditate and I get messages, the messages will often interrupt what I'm trying to say. That's how I know they're not from me. So it was like, hey, is there anything you want me to do? Yes, get a hold of my mom. I was like, get a hold of your mom. I don't even know your mom. I finished my meditation. The phone rings. Hello? Wes, this is Duke's mom. I don't even have her number or nothing. I go, Duke told me to get a hold of your meditation. She goes, yeah. Duke told me to get a hold of you too. So that's an experience I had where I'm like, okay, there's something on an energetic realm here, right? And then you get into Paul Selig, who he's a writer. He has, I think, seven or nine books out. Again, it's exploring. It's being open and just collecting things that do feel real and do feel like God or spirit or universe, whatever you want to call it. So my friend, I read Conversations with God, which that's a book about a guy who's kind of talking to God. And then God's like, okay, ask me some questions and I'll give you the answers. And he writes them down and becomes a book. And when you read it, when I read it, I was like, that seems like what God would say, like beyond what somebody would obviously know, but it made so much sense to me internally. Like, yeah, that feels right. My buddy said, well, yeah, it's a channel text. The Bible's a channel text. That's a channel text. You want to talk about channel text? Check out Paul Selig. Paul Selig was an atheist, agnostic, gay professor at NYU, struggling in his own life. He was hanging out for media, with mediums and these spiritual types looking for answers and starting to have some ability psychically. But he was like, this isn't for me. I don't know about this. I'm atheist. I'm agnostic. And you know, it just wasn't on the radar for him. And one of the people said, hey, just keep coming back. Keep doing what you're doing. And then 
After that, he became clairaudient. So he would start channeling the guides is what they call him. The guides said, we're going to dictate to you a book in two weeks. And he's like, I'm a writer. You can't do a book in two weeks. Well, sure enough, he had to get somebody tape record him. And when he channels, he basically will say like, I'm on a podcast with Ashley. I'm on a podcast with Ashley. We are talking about spirituality. We are talking about spirituality. That's how he does it really fast. And he'll do that for two hours. And so my friend said, you want to go see this cat speak? I thought he was going to talk about his book. Yeah, I wrote this in, you know, Arizona. But he starts channeling. There's no way this guy's making it up. He's starting a point over here and the metaphor ties in 15 minutes later. and comes here and he's just like, ah, la, la. And then he's like, stop, stop, stop. The guys say they're done. I was like, this is real. This is like not- Abraham Hicks. Totally like Abraham Hicks. So he's channeled seven or nine books. So then when he stopped, everybody put their hand up and I'm like, why is everybody putting their hand up? And because in the breaks, he'll take questions and people will ask him about things in their life. And he can also do step-ins, but he doesn't do what a normal psychic does, which is like, oh, something about a dog or maybe it's a woman. No, he'll go, the woman lady goes, hey, we need to know if this lady's a flight risk. Okay, what's her name? Minerva Johnson. Minerva Johnson is pissed. You're vilifying her. She didn't want your daughter's kid. Your daughter was messing up and she got stuck with the kid. Now you're vilifying her. And the lady's like, <laughs> I was like, what in the fuck? He just unraveled this whole, you know, Soap opera with no information. I love it. So anyhow, these are things that are real to me. And by the way, I asked him a question about my life and uh, I wrote it down and it was it was spot on. It, it's real deal stuff. So I have to keep going back to spirit or I'll go crazy. That's basically what it is for me. Simply put. Do you find that people are put off by that or do you work with people? I know for me, when I, when I came into program, I went to Catholic school for eight years. I came from religious background. My parents actually weren't religious, but I grew up in a religious community. And the spirituality thing was really, really difficult because no matter what people said about higher power, I still heard the word God and associated it with that religion. Has that ever been a struggle for you about, yes, I know that you're saying it's not organized religion, but gosh, it's sounds like it. No, luckily I was so blessed to separate it. And that was one of the, also one of the first things that I loved about AA. I was like, it's so genius is that they say a God of your understanding, because my whole life was like, I think there's something there, but your version, no, you know, like, wait, wait, wait. So if I don't say I accept Jesus, I burn in hell forever. When God knows there's going to be Aboriginal tribes who are just happy in their own way. And he's going to burn them in hell. Well, yes, if they were exposed to Jesus and they said, no, they'll have to go to now. No, uh-uh. <laughs> you're wrong. That ain't how it works. So when I got in there and it was God of your understanding, that was the beginning of my journey. And I heard people say stuff like, okay, well, you know, all these things that you think God isn't, what do you think God is? And I didn't think about it too much. I just knew I'm going to die. The 12 steps, I heard enough good shit about them and I'm going to do this process. And by the way, funny, we talked because a lot of people are like, well, I'm more scientific. Okay. How about this? You know how science works? Science says, I have a hypothesis. I think if I rub two sticks together, it'll make enough heat. It'll create fire. Let me see if I could do that. Hey, I did this. I took two sticks. I rubbed them, stepped through it. I created fire. Can I replicate that? Yep. Okay. That's science, right? Your hypothesis, you had the steps. When you repeat the steps, you can get the same result over and over and over. Guess what? 
The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are scientific. If you follow these steps, they will produce the result they say they're going to produce, which will give you a spiritual experience. So I was like, okay, cool. Funny thing. If I said, hey, do these 12 things and you'll have $100 million. People are like, okay, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'll just go do them. But do these 12 things and have the most magical ongoing transformation for the rest of your life. I don't know, man. I'm in a... (laughs) My girlfriend and I were texting about this the other day. You know, we're both over a decade sober and we were laughing about how we were talking about, you know, similar using experiences and and we were, that were like terrible and how at the time people were trying to introduce us to recovery and how die the alcoholic death or choose a spiritual solution, right? You know how the big book talks about those two choices and how we were like, that is the hardest choice like for us looking at the, look at, you know, we are the only group of people where we're like, okay, die the alcoholic death or choose the spiritual solution. Like, how long do I have to think about this? Like, can you give me a minute? Like that we actually, and I, I do remember other people are probably not as dense as I am, but I do remember being truly considering that. Like, is this something I'm willing to do? Like the alternative was so bad, but I just, it's like that blockage, right? And it's true. You're right. If we said 12 ways to get a hundred, I mean, how many blog posts, how many books, 10 ways to get whatever, whatever, 10 ways to get a hundred million dollars, the perfect guy, the perfect girl. You know, this is one of those, this is one of those things where we actually have to think about it and sometimes we choose the alcoholic death, whether we think we are or not. Yeah. We think we're choosing that. We like, we like the pain and misery we have more than the pain and misery we don't know about. Stockholm syndrome, all sorts of stuff. A lot of people will just stay miserable because that's what they're used to. And that's why so many people die in this disease. They got, it's kind of like it, when you're saying your story, it reminds me of like when there's like the ga- the mob boss and the guy's tied up in the chair, tell us where the money is. Boom, boom. No, I'm not going to tell you. Dude, if you tell them, they're going to let you go. Stop fighting. What do you do? It's that thing, right? No, I'm not giving this up. No, no. But we have this great life for you over here. No, no. But it's it's also the mob bosses. Like we have this experience that nothing ever works, right? So it's like, if that's a great example of also in our head, we're like, are they going to let us go? Is it going to work? I don't know. Like I've tried it before and it didn't work. Like there's messaging that's that's encoded in there that says nothing will ever work for me. I tried it that one time. You remember that one time that I did a detox and then I came home with absolutely no support or help or whatever. And then I couldn't stay sober. Well, that's what's going to happen again or whatever. And I remember look, walking into a meeting and looking at the 12 steps and, and shooting heroin, drinking myself to death, all these things and being like, if this is the answer to saving my life, I'm fucked. Like if this is the the recipe, I'm going to die. <laughs> this is not a good, you know, but because I didn't understand. And I, I think one of the things that people asked me, I don't know about you, they asked me like, do you want to be happier? They talked about serenity and things like that. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know what... And frankly, the first few times I felt serenity was scared the shit out of me. I think sometimes it's, you just have to want something other than what you have, right? It's like just taking that leap. It's like the movie Indiana Jones, right? Where the past I appears. That. I love that scene because it's, it is, you're just, and it's so funny watching it now. You're like, wow, we've really come a long way with, <laughs> with audio visual, but the, 
you know, you take that step and it appears. And like, that's been my experience. It really works that way. But you're fucking terrified the whole time. Like, that's true. Yeah. But why did he take that step? Because he had nowhere else to go. I think it's so cool that you're out doing this, out bringing this to treatment centers and and using music as this healing platform. Because sometimes, like you said, talking is just, you know, not what, that's not where people are going to connect. It's just, it's really, really cool. And thank you for doing that. Is it accessible to the public? Do you guys have public support? How can people become a part of the movement? Yeah, we have a nonprofit segment that we donate services to like the VA and like New Directions for Women in Orange County that helps addicted mothers or mothers with newborns. And because of our nonprofit, if if people want to support, we do a yearly event, which is really cool because it's a sober event and about half of the people in the audience will be actively coming from treatment centers as an outing because when you're going to rehab, they'll go, let's go hiking today or whatever. And so what we do is we honor a sober rock star. We've done Moby and Corey Taylor and Wayne Kramer from Legend from MC5 and uh, Mike Ness from Social Distortion. And we have red carpet and celebrities. And so this event is, you know, one public facing thing where we come together and the celebrities will tell their story like, hey, there would never have been a social distortion if I didn't get sober and stop shooting dope in my arms. And so that's really important. And that's on July 9 this year at the Fonda Theater in LA. So I think we're going to put this out in time to <laughs> promote it to people. We're also looking for volunteers and stuff like that because it's a, it's definitely a nonprofit fundraising event and it sells out at 1,300 people. We'll have this, you know, like I said, red carpet and celebrities and actors and sports illustrated models. And we even had a prince the other year. But uh, then also we have public groups, the, some of the good stuff that came out of COVID. We started learning how to do what we do on um, Zoom. And we have this really cool web app that we use where we can remotely write a song with uh, somebody and both drill into the sounds and, and write it together. And so you you can find us on social media. It's Rock2 Recovery, just like it's spelt here. Well, Rock Recovery on Instagram, on Facebook, on all sorts of stuff. And all the social medias, we have Rock Recovery. And we also have public-facing breathwork groups, which if anybody's ever done that, that's like an out-of-body experience. It's meditation on steroids for lack of a better term. Yeah. And then, well, yeah, well, since I'm talking about, we also have this book, which is basically when I started having the success I was having, watching people go from dope sick to elated in one session and and just like, I got to document this, you know? And so myself and Dr. Constance Scharf, we wrote a book. It's 18 vignettes of stories of transformations from wounded warriors to addicts, to sex trafficking, athletes, you know, you name it, where music, our music program was part of their transformation. So it's really a book of hope. And we also tie in some of the science of, you know, what happens when we do music and other things, but we wrote it all so people could have like kind of a handheld version of inspiration and how to, if you will. I love that. That's awesome. So that's Rock T.O. Recovery, the book. Wes, thank you so much for coming on here. It was awesome. Really appreciate it. And I hope to see you at meetings in our beautiful home and our Alano Club. If people are looking for Alano Clubs, please check them out. They're amazing places that you can go to find meetings and check out Rock to Recovery. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. 
LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.